Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. All right, we are delighted to have with us today for Ed's Up, uh, Dr. Ruby Payne. Dr. Payne is author of many different books. Any of you that are interested in education or you career educators out there, I'm sure, are already familiar with Dr. Payne's work. So she has been uh, here in Oxford, Mississippi today. And Dr. Payne, welcome to Ed's Up. We're glad to have you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Can you talk about why you're here in Oxford today? I wrote a book called Emotional Poverty in uh, a year ago, and it's basically about how you deal with the emotional issues in the classroom and the campus. Um, a lot of campuses right now are trying to treat an emotional issue as a discipline issue, and it's not working. And the second thing is that they're dealing with so many emotional issues now, they can't really get to instruction like they would like to. Great. You, know, you were speaking with, I think, over 250 administrators and teachers here today, and they were just hanging on every word I was watching, and they were, you had them so engaged because you gave a lot of practical strategies that they can use in their, in their schools and in their classrooms. And I could tell they were just eating up everything that you were giving to them. Um, and you mentioned your book, Emotional Poverty. You have talked in previous books about the role of poverty and behavior and, and social-emotional learning. and uh, So why now emotional poverty? Because it, that's not poverty, as I understand, in the traditional sense, that emotional poverty crosses all demographics. So would you talk about that concept of emotional poverty? Well, it's, a, it's basically the way I define it is when four things occur. One, you don't have a regulated and integrated brain, so it's actually a physical issue. Uh, secondly, you're in an environment that makes you feel like you're less than and separate from. Third, your style of bonding and attachment is insecure. You're not really sure you belong, and you're not really sure you're safe. And the fourth one is that your inner self is fairly weak and undeveloped. When we talk about deficits in the environment, one of the issues is, is if you're in an environment where you don't feel safe and you don't belong, then the ability to develop emotional strength is very limited. And so as we have students coming to us and as we have more safety issues, more mass school shootings, there becomes a real need to, at least on the part of professionals, to have a vocabulary to name what's happening to be able to do some interventions that work and to deal with their own safety and belonging issues. So is it safe to say that rather than, than educators maybe focusing on what's wrong with this kid, why is this kid you know, doing what he's doing that maybe we should focus more on what's wrong with the environment? Is that a safe analysis? Well, I don't like to think about deficits in children. I like to think about deficits in environment. In other words, if you grew up on a farm in Nebraska, you probably don't know how to swim. That doesn't mean you're deficit as a person. It just means that your environment did not afford that opportunity. And one of the issues is if you're in an environment where you don't have safety and you don't have belonging, you're not going to develop the same emotional prowess as someone who's had the opportunity to be in an environment that has safety and belonging. 
So, you know, when students are in, children are in an environment where they feel safe and they belong, then they're much less likely to have violence, anger, um, what we consider to be, schools consider to be bad or disruptive behavior. Right. Right. And so I think that what I did is I went back to the clinical research because it's actually all there. And what I did was I translated it for educators because you can't change behavior you can't name. You can't address a situation that you don't have an understanding of in a way that actually works. And so it was just to say, here's what it is. Here's why it develops the way it does. Here's how the environment shaped that development. Here's how genetics might shape the environment. Okay, And here's interventions you can use when you see that pattern. Yeah, I, I want to circle back just for a second on, you know, again, that emotional poverty is not just about wealth. And you said that there are children that from very wealthy families who also experience emotional poverty, and you gave a number of examples. Would you mind sharing kind of with our listeners maybe an example of a child who is who is – who is financially wealthy but might have some deficits or some, some po- poverty in terms of emotion. Huge. Mm-hmm. There's in, in wealth, in financial wealth, there's a huge pressure. To, see, one of the issues, particularly in new money, is that it's the, one of the most competitive places in the world to live because the parents have this issue. They have the money to get the children the opportunities they want for them, but they don't have the connections. Mm-hmm. So when you have the when you have the money but not the connections, then the only way you can get that opportunity for your child is for your child to be better than anybody else. So the level of competition is absolutely unbelievable. And on top of that, so there's such huge anxieties about competitive. And on top of that, in in financial poverty, if somebody doesn't like you, they whoop your butt. In wealth, if they don't like you, you are socially excluded. Mm-hmm. So you have this whole issue of belonging and safety, and it's not there. So I said to the group today, if you're in an affluent high school, I'll bet you money that half your girls are on Adderall. Mm-hmm. Adderall is a, is a drug that helps you deal with anxiety, and it helps you lose weight. So it's the favorite drug. And so one of the issues right now is it's brutal. And there's a book called The Price of Privilege about the huge level of anxiety among adolescents who are financially affluent. And you also talked about that girls who bully other girls, but it's not the most popular girl in the the class that's the one that's doing the bullying. It's often, and I would assume that could also play into what you just talked about, about maybe the parents are newly uh, newly wealthy, and so they feel tremendous pressure to get to the top to kind of over, so they're bullying the other ones that are sort of taking order. Is that the way that works? It it is, and it's brutal. And the whole thing about mean girls, and wannabe queens and queens and wannabe queens, uh, that's a reality. And so part of the issue here is uh, among girls, it's not just about your, your abilities. It's also about how you look. Okay, are you socially accepted? Um, and so it's a brutal, brutal level of competition. I was a principal of a very affluent elementary school. In I would have students deliberately lose, deliberately lost $200, $300, $400 pieces of clothing because one person had made a comment about it, mm-hmm. and it was supposedly no longer acceptable. Wow. So they, quote, unquote, lost it. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. And then, um, you know, you also talked about the differences in the kind of the brains of boys and girls. We've just talked a lot about girls. But now you talk a little bit about kind of the development of boys and how vastly different their representation is in terms of emotional poverty. Well, they there's there's a lot of debate out there. But what the computers are pretty clear about is that you can identify basically 75% of the time whether it's a male or female brain, okay? But we know that male brains have less blood flow across hemispheres, more blood flow within hemispheres. So that's one of the reasons it's harder for male brains to actually process emotion and language because emotion is processed primarily in the right hemisphere, language in the left hemisphere. And so since they have less blood flow across hemispheres, what it means is it's harder for a male brain to put words with feelings. And it's processed in, in males. In the MRI brain scans in females, when they have an emotional hit, anything that jeopardizes safety or belonging, basically they'll, within two and a half minutes, it's throughout the whole brain. In a male brain, because it's processed in one hemisphere, the right, it takes on the average about three to five hours for that information to get throughout the brain, and then they want to be left alone and be silent. A female brain wants to cry and talk. Mm -hmm. And what happens in the school business is we tend to, if you have a female administrator and you have a male student and they don't talk to the the administrator right away, then we punish them a second time. Mm -hmm. And, And you have to give them more wait time. It just takes them longer to process. So interesting. Uh, one of the things you said that stood out to me was you said uh, so often that the difference in good behavior and bad behavior is compassion for oneself and compassion for others. Uh, would you talk about that? And then what can parents do to develop more, you know, to develop the more compassion, but also to um, reduce the likelihood that their children will will experience emotional poverty? I know that's a big question. So. Well, one of the most valuable things that parents do for their children is they give them uh, love and attention. Okay, And for some parents, there's this belief that I give them love and attention, they won't be disciplined. Okay, We worked with a group of prisoners, and they were being ready to be released. And we asked them, how are you going to discipline your children? And they said, just like we were, we're going to beat them. And we said to them, well, did that work for you? And they said no. And there's a strong belief among many parents that if you don't aren't harsh with your children, you'll ruin them. And what the difference is, is there's a difference between punishment and discipline. And what happens is that you want to set the boundaries of acceptable behaviors. One thing we talked about is how damaging psychological abuse is versus behavioral control. So a lot of parents don't do behavioral control. In other words, they don't focus on what the child did. They focus on who the child is. And you should know better. You know better than that. I'm ashamed of you. All that psychological control, and that actually interferes with the development of identity. But you you need behavioral control. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction that very often people think of of 
punitive measures or as discipline as being the same thing as you know setting boundaries and and you know it's just they're, they're so very different the children need limits they need to know or else they're going to push to see how much you care how much whether you're you care enough to set the limit they're asking you I need your help I need you to help bring me into control here and so they will often test us to see that so I think that's a really important I actually had a mother say to me she came to see me and she said when I was a principal she said won't it permanently damage my child if I tell him no mm-hmm. I said you will permanently damage him if you don't tell him no mm-hmm. yeah you gave a number of good examples of um, of, of psychological um, damage uh, in contrast to disciplinary guidance would you talk kind of give an example of that for our listeners of, of you know the difference between giving uh, you know, psychologically harming children versus giving them guidance on their behavior rather than on their, their them as a person. Well, I think I gave the example of my son, and one of the things that happens when kids hit adolescents, teenagers, parents become very reluctant to do behavioral control because it's like, well, he's a, he's an you know he's driving now, he's an adolescent. Okay, there's not much I can do. There's not much mm-hmm. I can do, and and that would be wrong thinking. You want the behavioral control but not the psychological control and the example I gave is my son the town we lived in had 18 as a curfew and he was 17 years old and we told him if you're going to be out past 18 or out past midnight curfew was midnight you have to call us and tell us okay because we'll be worried about you so he was out one night he called me at midnight and said hey mom he was 17 I'm not going to be able to be until 1230 you know somebody's car broke down yada 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 he called me at 1, 12.30 and said, hey, Mom, we're not going to be into 1, yada, 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 yada. 1 o'clock he calls me, Mom, we're not going to be into 1.30, yada, 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 yada. 1.30 he calls me, Mom, we're not going to be into 2, yada, yada, yada. Well, by that time, I realized I was played, okay? Well, I was furious. When he got home that night, I said, you cannot know how grateful I am that you called me every half hour. I would have been worried out of my mind. I said, but curfew is midnight, And I realized this was a planned activity. So I said, I'm too upset to talk about it in the morning. Let's talk. So in the morning, I said, Tom, curfew is is midnight. You're not 18 yet. It's curfew. He said, that's the stupidest law I ever heard. I said, it may be a stupid law, but it's the law. And if you don't like it, contact your legislature and get it changed. But it's the law right now. He said, you don't trust me. I said, I trust you fine. The issue is you're in an environment that's not predictable. You have no idea what the other people around you are going to do. And I said, what if you landed in jail? Your dad's gone. I'm gone. Who would get you out of jail? I said, I, I trust you just fine, but you're not the only one out there. I said, so from now on, for the next month, you have to be in 11 o'clock. He said, that's awful. I said, you should be grateful to your father because I was going to take your car keys, okay? But it's that was behavioral control. I never said anything to him like, you're no good. How could you do that? You lied to me. You planned this. I can't trust you now. You're That's psychological control. It's about who you are. And it has no value whatsoever. What you want to keep the conversation focused on is the behavior. I tend to very much agree with those psychologists who say that 
Many parents rob their children of a tremendous benefit of experiencing the consequences of behavior. It's much better to allow them to make choices and see what happens, you know, what, what's the reaction to certain behaviors uh, when they're three and four and five than it is to be 21, and then the consequences of that behavior is much, much greater and can have lifelong consequences. So, uh, yes, I think uh, giving, allowing them to, to and, but again, in that circumstance, you did it so lovingly. You know, you said, I, I was worried about you, and I, if you're out there and you might get thrown in jail, if we're gone or you can't control the people around you, you know, that's, the, it seems like that would make sense to a, a, even, a, even a teenager. <laughs> Well, and I used to I used to have parents, affluent parents when I was a principal. They would come in and they did not want their child to have any consequences. So I would ask them this question. At what age do you think your child will be responsible for his or her behavior? And they almost always say 18. Mm. And then I'll say to them, would you expect your child to turn 18 and be a skilled tennis player and never have played tennis? And they'll go, no. And I'll go, well, responsibility and decision-making is actually a learned behavior. And you have to start earlier if you want them to be able to do that at 18. And for many parents, that was a surprise. Yeah, uh, because... I mean, I'm sure we all, I can say this in my own you know, family, you have you know, young parents who the child leaves their homework at school or their lunch money, and they you know, just go rushing down there to make sure that they don't experience any kind of negative consequence. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, it's better to experience that. They won't forget their lunch money. They won't forget their homework next time if they are responsible for it. And that's how we teach them to own their, how we, how we teach them to own their behavior. Um, one other thing I'd just like to mention is that you talked about how to give students the, te- the, the strategies, how to give them tools. Like you talked about calming techniques, how to actually teach those. Uh, you know, we, we're perfectly fine with teaching reading and math, and, but we don't teach children sometimes the things to deal with their own emotional health. Would you talk more about like teaching students strategies for whether it's you know self-soothing or how to deal with, with some of the things that they're feeling? Yeah, one, one quick and dirty strategy is is water. 10 to 12 ounces of water. What water does is it metabolizes cortisol and you produce cortisol when you get afraid. Okay? And so you watch them when their shoulders start to relax, the water starts to metabolize the cortisol. Another one that's really calming is just to look up at the I ceiling. That. I saw that in the book, and yeah, of looking up. Yeah, mm-hmm. when you look up, it's not possible for your brain actually to access feelings. And when you look up at the ceiling, your brain actually can't access. So I used to use it all the time to keep kids from crying, to calm them down when they got angry, to have them draw stuff on the ceiling. I have a friend, he's a middle school principal, and his frequent flyers show up in his office, you know, kids he sees a lot. And as they're walking in his office, they'll say, all right, where's my water? And what am I going to draw on the ceiling this time? Does it work? Is it working? <laughs> but the thing is, they already know the calming strategies. And really, they're making fun of it, but they're really asking for it. One you spent considerable time today talking about that I think is so powerful is metaphor stories. Would you talk about that more, please, for our listeners? Yes. Metaphor stories are fabulous, and they come out of narrative therapy. It's a therapy technique in psychology. 
And honestly, I, I, I want to say again to the listeners, I just went back to the clinical research and read it. I mean, it's there, but it's not translated for use in the classroom. Do you know what I mean? So I was looking at, okay, and I read tons and tons of clinical research. Okay, could you use this in the classroom, yes or no? Okay, well, one of them you can use is something called a, a metaphor story. And the research is that in addition to these five inherited tendencies people have, and they're universal around the world, they're also finding in the research that there's three pieces in a story you make about yourself that determine in part how well and how stably you're going to negotiate your life. Okay, And uh, one of them is structure, you know, who you are and what you're going to do. You won't use a behavior that interferes with the story. So a lot of times in the school business, you'll watch a student do something and you know they don't understand why they did it and you don't either. And so there's a technique called a metaphor story and you never use proper names. You always end on a positive note. But what you do is through a series of cause and effect questions, you find out what that story is inside their head that they're using to direct their behaviors. And one of the examples I gave was this boy I had in the fifth grade, a kid, big kid. Six feet, smart kid. But every time he had a substitute, he was in my office. And he was, um, he had a teacher who was sick a lot, so he was in my office a lot, you know? And it wouldn't take 10 minutes till he'd be down in my room, down to see me, 10 minutes after school started. So nothing was working. So one day I said, hey, will you help me tell a story? And he said, is this story about me? And I said, well, it can be if you want it to be, but I'm not in the fifth grade. So I said, sure. I said, once upon a time, there was a boy, a wonderful boy. The boy got along great in school, except when the substitute came. And then the boy had issues. What happened? What did the boy do when the substitute came? He said, well, he threw paper, made jokes, and caused trouble. And that's what he'd been doing. I said, what do his friends think? They don't know. They're confused. Well, that told me that he wasn't doing it for his friends. I said, so what does the boy do with the regular teacher? Why well, he sits in his seat, he takes notes, he pays attention. Why doesn't he do that for the sub? I don't know. So I thought, well, maybe there's a reason he likes to come to the office. I said, so what happens to the boy when the substitute is there and he throws notes and calls paper or tells jokes and causes trouble? He said, he gets sent to the office. I said, what happens to him in the office? Well, the principal tells him it can't happen again. Well, I've been doing that, you know, it really worked. Um, so now I'm stuck. And realizing that kids bring in behaviors outside of school, I said to him, so what does a boy do at home? And he said, well, it depends which house he's in. Okay. Now, to make a long story short, he used one set of behaviors with his mom, one set with his dad. I'm thinking he's going to use one set of behaviors because it's the same place. He's used to changing out behaviors depending on who's in charge. So I you build a solution in the story. I said what the boy needs to do, he needs to use one set of behaviors all the time because it's the same place. Can the boy do that? And he said yes. And I said, what are those behaviors? And he told me. And so I said the boy... Um, used one set of behaviors all the time, and he had no more problems in his classroom. And I never saw him anymore for that. So just, uh, I love that idea. I'm going to use that because, uh, you know, just the, the child is able to talk about it by removing themselves from the story, even though they are connecting themselves to the story. It just seems like a very powerful strategy. The research is that your subconscious disconnects when it's in, Sorry, your conscious disconnects when it's in a a generic form. 
Very fascinating. Well, our guest today has been Dr. Ruby Payne, internationally recognized expert on uh, matters of economic class and overcoming the hurdles of poverty and now on emotional poverty and how that impacts children in the classroom. We're just delighted to have you in Mississippi. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for the pleasure. We like to end each podcast with a poem for children because children love rhymes and poetry. And this is from FamilyFriendPoems.com by Eva Robinson, If I Were. If I were a queen, I'd rule a mighty land. If I were a princess, I'd take a prince's hand. If I were a soldier, I'd fight a mighty war. If I were a hero, I'd be the best they ever saw. If I were a dancer, I'd dance with such grace. If I were a runner, I'd win every race. If I were an actress, I'd take part in a play, for I can do anything, no matter what you say. That's by Eva Robinson from FamilyFriendPoems.com, If I Were. Please give your children the gift of poetry. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at oldmiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.